What do you do if you're a tech company that's just developed the next big thing and then realises you've got to comply with regulation to make sure it gets to market? Well, we've got a really interesting conversation today with a couple of our PA experts about how government works with groundbreaking technology to make sure it's where it needs to be for the public to make use of and enjoy. So speaking of enjoy, here is episode 16 of Sideload. Welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and today we are talking all about the intertwining world of technology and public affairs. Technology is shaping society in new ways, but that makes it all the more important for the government to reflect the interests of the general public. This episode of Sideload is all about how the government sets the agenda for the tech industry that always seems to be a moving target. What are the current issues and how is the government and government policy responding? Well, I don't have the answers, but joining me at Sideload HQ are a couple of experts to give an informed opinion. Elliot Langley made it through Edelman's rigorous graduate scheme with only minor bruises. He now provides political intelligence for some big name public affairs clients. And Craig Woodhouse is a director looking after digital economy and leisure brands at Edelman. He's also a former press secretary for the Prime Minister. But don't worry, we've vetted him thoroughly and he is indeed one of the good guys. Elliot, Craig, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Nice to be here. So let's start with the big question then. How does the government even try to keep pace with such a fast-moving industry such as technology? Well, this is something which is uh, definitely exercising ministers and has been for some time, uh, not least because there tends to be a situation that technology moves uh, a lot faster than um, than politicians and definitely a lot faster than parliament, uh, and it's uh, having wide impacts on society. And what we've seen uh, over the past sort of nine to 12 months is that the government's really decided that it does want to try and get, get to grips with this, um, making sure that kind of the same rules apply to people online as offline, uh, and that uh, particularly with regards to internet safety, that Britain is one of the best places in the world to do that. There's also uh, what's just over a year or coming up to a year uh, since the government published its digital strategy which sought to take a look at this thing in the round. So not just internet safety but everything from connectivity to data to how do you uh, harness technology for businesses and how do you make sure this is the best place in the world to start and grow a digital business. So it's definitely something that's on the government's, uh, on the government's mind, on the government's agenda and something that they know they need to be, uh, they need to be on top of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they they clearly are sort of getting trying to get to grips with it. Uh, digital and particularly artificial intelligence featured heavily in the industrial strategy, which was published uh, just before uh, the end of last year. Um, but but as Craig said, you know, legislation takes a long time to pass. Uh, it, it just does. It it has to go through you know the Commons and the Lords, and it quite often gets sent back or amended. And, um, and with a with an industry that is developing and evolving as as quickly and as exponentially as as technology. Uh, there, there is a risk that that simple legislation just just doesn't quite keep keep up, um, and I think an- another problem the government faces is it, with with the tech sector in general is that uh, ministers just don't really understand some some aspects of it. You know, they're not really experts in the in the tech industry. I mean, Amber Rudd was uh, you know um, got a lot of bad publicity last year for not really understanding and in, in her battle to you know allow backdoor access to WhatsApp, not really understanding how encryption functions and, you know, lots of things about necessary hashtags and uh, and things like that. So so it, it, it is a problem. Uh, but I think, as Craig said, we are we are starting to see the government 
get to grips with it and and try to move forward. Um, sure. the, the point about the necessary hashtags was slightly uh, slightly overdone by people who actually don't understand encryption and don't understand yeah. how the <laughs> hashing technology has actually helped to uh, take down lots of child pornography images in particular. So that was yeah. a case of journalists who know even less than ministers about technology <laughs> having a go at a minister for not knowing something about technology that she actually knew about. But one of the things that this government has actually tried to do to its credit is realise what it uh, that it know that it doesn't know everything. Uh, and you saw that through the uh, digital strategy, the creation of the Digital Economy Council uh, and the digital digital advisory group where it's bringing together uh, businesses large and small from the technology sector to help tackle some of these challenges because um, ministers and civil servants know that they don't know everything and you can never underestimate actually what a difficult admission that is for politicians to make. And, and that's that's a great step but I, I want to ask how does the technology industry view government? Does it think that government's clipping its wings? I think it depends which bit of technology you talk to, and and, and that's uh, always a challenge when um, kind of saying this is a technology sector. Uh, I think in in the new um, digital culture media and sports secretary Matt Hancock, uh, the sector certainly has the most pro tech minister it has ever had. Um, he made great strides as the digital minister, the junior minister before he was appointed Secretary of State, to really build links with the industry, um, as have some of the senior civil servants at uh, the department where I used to work, notably um, Matthew Gould has gone out of his way to really build links both here and over in uh, over in America with this sector. But um, there's no doubt at all that while trying to um, foster this place of Britain being the best place in the world to start and grow a digital business, there is this competing uh, narrative of wanting to... Um, hammer the tech giants and particularly the social media giants for not doing enough to keep people safe and um, for ignoring their social responsibilities and 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 we've seen that numerous times over the past year whether it's with regards to terrorism or tax dodging or whatever uh, and that I think uh, is confusing for some in the in the, in the sector some in the industry of you know is this government pro or anti really yeah yeah absolutely I mean Matt, Matt Hancock as he said is adopted a pretty liberal attitude towards towards even the big tech companies which basically will promote your freedom but not the freedom to trample on the freedom of others was was a quote that he he made back when he was minister before he was made secretary um which is you know clearly the government recognizes that that society benefits enormously when governments and private technology firms uh work in harmony with each other um there's there's a huge amount of uh collaboration uh, and technological advancements that, that government support can help with um but in some cases, the relationship is is far from harmonious, um, as we know. Um, particularly, you know, uh, with regard to Facebook, Twitter, fake news, online abuse, and and counterterrorism measures. And we are seeing a, in some areas of the government, a deterioration in in the tone, language uh, used by key ministers. Um, Amber Rudd kept coming back to you know Conservative Party conference last year. She was you know describing big tech firms as, as patronizing and, and sneering at regulation. Um, and I think there is a there is a, there is a um, a sense amongst amongst ministers that and it's poss- possibly justified that big tech huge sprawling multinational tech firms don't pay significant sufficient attention to domestic regulation and to some extent see themselves as above uh, the power of individual governments to to regulate. And that is not Welcomed by by MPs who generally don't don't like to be you know looked down on, um, I think we will start to see this uh, bubbling over more and more as as year goes on. Um, there there is sort of some talk of, of regulation, although there is 
uh, as we said, uh, limited amounts possibly that individual governments can do. But when you see sort of supranational organisations like like the EU uh, start to take on uh, the likes of Google with multi-billion pound fines levied recently for antitrust measures, that could have some impact. And as we know from uh, the trust barometer data, I know we're going to come on to that in a minute, but public trust in these companies is deteriorating rapidly and uh, something like 10%, I think the figure was 10% of uh, young people have left Facebook in, in the last month. Now, once that actually starts to affect the bottom line, then it may cause these companies to actually sit up and take some notice because that, that is their business model. And if, if public trust starts to deteriorate, that's obviously in politi- politicians' interest to address, but it's also in the interest of the companies to address too. It's sure. um, if you look at the PM speech in Davos uh, last week, uh, there are two things that follow from, from what Elliot was saying. One, the, the Prime Minister was talking about the need for international rules making to, to try and curb some of the excesses of these huge social media companies and um, had also singled out Telegram as not wanting to be the, 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 uh, the terrorist's app, you know, actually picking on one particular company and saying they need to step up. Um, but the other thing which I thought was really interesting and spoke to the difficulty that governments have in, in regulating or trying to control this was uh, the Prime Minister calling on investors in these companies to uh, take the lead and you know almost encouraging activist investors to be in the boardrooms of these places and say we need to do a lot more because people aren't, aren't being protected in the way that they should be. Um, when you mentioned um, Elliot about certain techno- technology companies feeling like they are almost above the law I can't help but think about Uber and the case study we have with that. And I think they were only prompted to move after they realized, hang on a minute, we might not be able to operate in London anymore. Is, is Is that the only way that tech companies are going to sit up and pay attention? Yeah, I mean, possibly. It's, Uber's a really in- a fascinating case study. Um, obviously, they've, they've had their, their license to operate within London revoked pending uh, an appeal. And I think the general feeling is that that appeal will, will be successful, uh, partly because Uber has started now to actually engage with with, uh, with authorities and address some of the concerns that they have over, which it's important to stress, are not the concerns. The reason they have had the license revoked is not to do with uh, wider concerns around employment. Um, you know, that there's a lot of questions about the gig economy, about whether Uber drivers is fair to class Uber drivers as self-employed, whether they should be entitled to holiday holiday rights and other benefits. Those questions are, are you know, wider questions that will also have to be resolved at some point. Um, but what, what I think that case study shows is that where regulators actually come down quite hard, even if it is, you know, basically just called Uber's bluff, uh, and it has resulted in a a response. Um, Another sort of possibly parallel example where where something, a different strategy was used is in Germany, where Germany has actually um, imposed uh, fines on social media companies who fail after 24 hours notice to take off uh, offensive or illegal uh, news posts or and, and the fines are quite extensive, um, up to, you know, I think it can be up to about 50 million euros. And this has resulted in Facebook immediately hiring 3,000 more staff in order to uh, monitor and regulate posts. So, so where these, what may be seen as, uh, in the context of regulation, quite draconian measures are imposed, it does actually bring results. And I think there's a, this is some, an opportunity for a lot of technology companies, and maybe there are startups who are wondering what to do and how to go about engaging uh, who have the ambition to become people like Uber, which is what we've seen with companies like Uber and Facebook, is they uh, take off, 
they grow very very quickly they don't really engage with the government from the from day one and so they found themselves being regulated without having had any input into that regulation and all they have to do is then react to something which has happened to them and it's infuriating to ministers and civil servants that these companies kind of refuse to engage up until the point at which they're absolutely forced to mm-hmm. and there is a huge as I say a huge opportunity for companies who take a different approach to that and say this is what we're planning to bring to market this is how we think it's going to work do you think there are any con- concerns that we can iron out at this stage because if Uber had started uh, from the beginning I mean you can take away what, the fact that you know whether it's run through Holland and are we are just an app and are we connecting its drivers to but whatever all of those arguments but if they'd actually said well this is how the model works can you foresee any problems and the government would say actually do you know what on employment legislation I think that's probably not quite right and then they could put in some tweaks and then they would never have been dragged to court and they wouldn't be having this controversy so there is there is a I understand why companies are sometimes either reluctant to engage they don't understand the need to do that um, or they just don't know how um, but the the long-term benefits of doing that are enormous because you can avoid precisely these these problems that are happening well, hot off the press is the latest results from the Edelman Trust Barometer. And as we've um, alluded to already, there's um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Trust in the government is still low. Um, figures are saying that it's at 36% uh, the trust in government on the Trust Barometer this year. So can the public trust the government to do what's in their best interest with technology? Look, there's been a, we've seen over the, over the past few years a, a kind of crisis in trust in all sorts of institutions and government uh, hasn't escaped that at all Uh, and there's a a challenge there as to how government goes about trying to rebuild uh, trust with the with the general public I think what was really interesting about um, this trust barometer was the uh, growing distrust in social media companies that it that it showed um, and uh, and on their on on the public wanting far more action on things like um, bullying, terrorist content, and so on and so forth. So much so that the government cited our, our the prime minister cited our, our very own trust data in the uh, in her Davos speech. Look, I mean, can the public trust the government to do what's right to protect them? Uh, the problem is with the kind of knee-jerk reaction, particularly from parliamentarians, so not actually the government, but MPs and other bits of politics, and the news media, to a certain extent, the traditional news media of, there's a problem, something must be done. And when there's a problem and something must be done, it forced the government to do something about it, because frankly there isn't anyone else to do anything about it. So um, it's uh, the public can trust that the government understands their concerns around the things that we've been talking about with social media uh, and they're just going to have to trust that they're the right people to do something about it because frankly there isn't anyone else to unless the social media companies and the technology companies want to do something themselves but at the moment there is very little sign of them really understanding and engaging and stepping up to the plate on that. Just to take that down a slightly different route um, I mean part of the problem with this is technology is so broad and there are so many and it's, it's evolved so quickly into so many different sectors and and while social media is 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 a huge concern i mean the government is uh can you trust the government to carry through with its uh its you know aim on something like driverless cars for example philip hammond has said he wants to see driverless cars on british roads by 2021 that is hugely ambitious uh the, the technology is scary there. to me as well i think well <laughs> i mean it just it just creates so many so many problems that need to be overcome uh, in order to to facilitate that firstly um you know, the the legislation has to be in place so there is uh, a bill going through through parliament now um that would uh, allow for you know problems relating to insurance i mean who it, it, 
because driverless cars will drastically reduce the number of accidents on the road, but they will still happen. And when that does happen, who is ultimately responsible? Um, I was having an interesting chat with someone yesterday who pointed out something that I had never considered, um, but I think actually now makes a huge amount of sense, which is that driverless cars are programmed to to uh, you know spot potential hazards much more quickly than that a human can and will will stop if you know someone walks out in front of the road. So will that mean that people just you know, walk into roads and and the cars will just have to stop and it will be impossible to get down a high street because everyone knows that they're never going to be hit by anything. Um, the other problem, obviously, is, um, and I know Richard Elliman talked about this briefly in his in his speech in London here last week, uh, is what happens to the the haulage industry or the, the taxi driving industry, um, which employs a huge amount of people, all of whom will be suddenly rendered uh, uh, jobless. And... Um, we'll come on to artificial intelligence, I know, in a minute, but I think one of the government's, one of the serious problems the government is is not addressing or hasn't even started to to address properly is is uh, the, the risk of automation to um, to blue collar jobs and and eventually white collar jobs and uh, how it's how it's going to deal with mass numbers of of displaced people. I would uh, I disagree that the government isn't looking at it. It was this as a precise. Uh, problem of how do you stop AI taking people's jobs and how do you make sure that, the, that this kind of growth in jobs for people all over the place was part of the PM speech and was actually goes to the heart of the Taylor review and the, mm-hmm. and the and uh, Greg Clark's department uh, are doing a lot of work in, in looking at this the the problem is that no one's really got any answers um, the Labour Party uh, held a commission on the future of work that they thought was going to come up with far more answers, better answers than the government was able to because they did engage a load of trade unions on it actually didn't really come up with any other solutions other than we all need to be aware that maybe there's going to be a problem here um, I think the, the attitude that's being taken which is true is that we've seen kind of industrial revolutions in the past and uh, uh, although there's huge disruption and jobs get taken away from that, entirely new types of jobs are created um, and there's there's huge opportunity to employ people in different ways. Now, the problem with that is uh, that can take a long time uh, or it involves a significant amount of uh, reskilling and retraining, which is uh, expensive, time-consuming, and in some cases people just don't want to do it. I mean, you saw that with the closure of the mining industry, particularly in the kind of uh, Midlands and North, where you had like a generation uh, of mainly men who were then over 40 when the, when the mines had closed and they didn't retrain, they didn't reskill, and you had a quite significant entrenched long-term unemployment uh, in that cohort until unfortunately on the whole they kind of die out. And that there will be pockets of that and it's a significant challenge uh, and it's kind of a bit of answers on a postcard at the moment. We're going to talk a bit more about if the government and social networks will ever be able to play nicely. But first, let's take a step back and hear a little snippet from the last episode of Sideload where we went to Vegas for the world's biggest consumer tech show. The sort of the net impact of the play of both Google and Amazon uh, to win in the consumer device market through embedding their assistance and their voice activated technology is going to be huge. Um, and I would say, unless you were there and you saw the scale of it, it's actually hard to believe. But by summer of this year, uh, I would expect pretty much any consumer device that's in any way connected to the internet that's shipping 
will have one or both of uh, Google or Alexa assistants. And if you then think about what that does that actually mean for the way in which consumers interact with one another and with brands, uh, it's going to be huge. You know, these platforms are going to get so much bigger and penetrate our lives in many different ways. Uh, I think that's exciting um, slash scary at the same time. Uh, but generally, for me, that was the big takeout. Uh, it really was the year that voice became mainstream. Hello, you're listening to Sideload, and today we're talking about governing future innovation. We're still here with Elliot Langley and Craig Woodhouse, two of our public affairs specialists at Edelman. So, what role does government play in tackling fake news online, and are the social networks willing to comply? Well, this is something which uh, uh, has engaged ministers for about, I would say, 18 months uh, to two years. When I was working in the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, it was something that had started coming across um, our desk and uh, there was a kind of feeling of it's something that needs to be looked at, but actually in this country in particular, with regards to the traditional news media, they're very reluctant to have any state intervention. So where whereabouts does this, uh, what is the role for government in this? And I think domestically that's still very much the case in terms of um, how do you stop this problem uh, and engage the traditional newspapers. However, the government, I think, last week or the week before, announced that it was setting up a, a fake news unit, uh, which is actually far more about countering um, fake news from foreign actors. They're kind of uh, aiming to stop foreign states, Russia being the, the primary concern, um, from uh, putting out fake news, spreading fake news very quickly, and influencing either elections or kind of general sentiment in this country. So that is the route where the government feels that it can definitely go down and uh, kind of in a risk-free way, if you like. Um, how you do it domestically is a, is a, is a much bigger challenge. And uh, in terms of how you make the social media companies do anything about it, uh, and it's not just social media, it's also search in, in this in this instance, um, it's, it's, a, it's a bully pulpit thing, really. Uh, regulating for this is incredibly difficult it's also time consuming so it's about standing up and saying you need to do more uh, and I think we've seen um, from the way that particularly Facebook has reacted over the past sort of 18 months that there is a recognition that this is bad for democracy if fake news is spreading um, and, uh, and and how do we tackle it on that, on that basis uh, which is good to see to see them having stepped up on that. So they are willing to comply they're not being dragged into this kicking and screaming? Well, Facebook this uh, this week, actually, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that it is going to start prioritising uh, local news on people's news feeds as part of a, a stated drive to counter sort of the fake news epidemic, as I think he put it, um, which again seems to be uh, a way of countering uh, sort of foreign states, well, not, not necessarily state-sponsored, but, but foreign uh, sort of news stories which are put out there with you know to influence uh, major public events elections um, and that kind of thing um, I think there is a sense that uh, you know the excuses are running out and that the the social media company's argument that basically uh, platforms of that size are unpoliceable uh, because of the sheer amount of data um, is not one that that while, while I personally can sort of see it and I think long term the answer is going to have to be algorithms that are sufficiently developed in order to accurately spot this. Now, those don't exist at the moment, but but they will do eventually. Um, but right now, politicians don't agree. What, what tech companies, there's a fundamental misalignment here that what tech companies see as uh, simply impossible, politicians see as a lack of a lack of will. And, you know, Facebook, there's something like 300 hours of video content uploaded to YouTube uh, every single minute. Now, 
it is reasonable to say that that, that cannot possibly be manually policed. Um, but it, 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 Facebook are, and, and YouTube and Google and, and these other sites are starting to you know hire pretty sizable teams of people whose whose job is to uh, to take down content that has been flagged, which is the mechanism that it basically exists now. Um, they rely on users to flag inappropriate content, but multiple newspapers, The Times has done a, a big long running campaign on this to demonstrate that where content has been flagged, uh, it's been failed to take down. And uh, I think politicians are, are just losing patience and, and regulation of some description along the lines that we mentioned in Germany, uh, a while back with fines imposed where where this isn't where you know flag things aren't taken down um we may start to see sort of murmurs of that being introduced here in future if if it doesn't improve i would probably be told off if i didn't bring you in here and mention brexit so and <laughs> um, we're pulling out of the eu obviously so what effect is that going to have on technology <sighs> big one um i would say um you know there obviously a, a huge amount is going to depend on, on what sort of final deal yeah uh, if indeed we get one, which I think is, is very likely now. Um, the good news is obviously the government, as we've discussed, has recognised the importance of the tech sector as a huge British success story, is, is throwing huge amounts of investment into it, into AI and 5G networks. Um, it's, you know, London is, is the, the tech startup capital of Europe. Um, the UK got £28 billion in capital investment for, uh, for tech startups in 2016, and compared to Germany, which got less than £10 billion. Um, but, you know, outside foreign investment is the lifeblood that makes uh, the startup scene attack, attract top talent. And if post-Brexit, whether accurately or not, Britain is seen as a less attractive place to, to go and work, um, you know, they they will struggle to, to recruit. Um, and, you know, there have been surveys that show that, that tech companies here are already losing out on international hires due to Brexit. And that may be more to do with a, a perception as opposed to shit hard economic fact, um, that that may actually end up being one of the most one of the most damaging things. I mean, we could come on to the ways in which which data regulation, etc., may have a may have a big impact in terms of uh, the GDPR in a minute. But um, I would say simply, you know, right now, uh, when nothing has tangibly changed, the the biggest problem is is simply perception. Is simply that uh, you know people working in tech companies tend to be uh, very internationally focused, they tend to be very ambitious, very uh, freedom of movement is, is hugely important and if they see Britain withdrawing from the global sector, uh, startups will, will struggle to recruit. I would challenge that to a certain extent um, because it, it the, the impact of Brexit is going to depend partly on, on technology, on which bit of technology you're involved in. So if you, at the moment, are a part of the technology sector that requires you to import lots of mobile phones at a very short notice and there is going to be customs checks, then that's going to have a huge impact on you. Um, however, what you were saying about uh, it being an international workforce is that at the moment, workers can come very easily from inside the European Union and they can't come from anywhere else. So if you were Tencent or Alibaba, something you wanted to set up here with a huge Chinese workforce, almost impossible. Uh, if after Brexit there is an immigration regime which opens Britain's, up, Britain's immigration system up to the rest of the world and means that you can come here as easily from Beijing as you can from Budapest at the moment, then that will change the nature of the companies that are coming here, but won't actually have that impact on being able to uh, recruit that, that technology uh, workforce. There is the thing you say about the perception as to whether it's a good or bad place to work for, but in the past sort of two or three years, we've seen huge inward investment from companies which, let's not forget, 
are not part of the European Union or not based in part of the European Union. So Apple is going to have its new headquarters here in the um, in the Battersea Power Station. We've had huge investment from Google. We've had huge investment from Facebook, from Amazon Web Services. And so those are companies who are saying they've made those decisions since the Brexit referendum. So they know what's coming and they've decided that they're going to um, make huge investments here anyway. Four letters. GDP. <laughs> what can they be? <laughs> GDPR. Have we got a headache on our hands in terms of data regulation? Because GDPR is on our doorstep, but then we've also got to think about what happens post-Brexit, don't we? Yes, yeah, so and it's worth pointing out that the government took a decision to uh, introduce GDPR uh, irrespective of the fact that we are leaving the European Union, partly because it understands that the need for a data adequacy deal with the European Union is so important and the chances of being able to get that are far higher if we have brought in GDPR uh, like other member states are, are uh, being required to do. There was also the case that it had been hanging around a lot in the background, companies had started preparing for it and it involves an awful lot of change for companies but most of them have started doing it and we're saying look this is happening can we just get on with it um, because we've made all these preparations now we don't particularly like a lot of it but let's just hurry up and do it. Uh, and so the, the the there are two kind of separate points here. It's like fine, you introduce GDPR, that doesn't guarantee you a data adequacy deal. And so, will data adequacy with the European Union be part of um, what we manage to get? And if we're not, if not, then that has some really serious implications. Um, and secondly, what does a regime look like uh, after we've left the European Union? Are we going to diverge or not? And at the moment, that's very much up in the air. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. GDPR is coming in in May. Uh, we will be signed up. It will be implemented here. So, theoretically, the, there shouldn't be too much of a problem requiring a data adequacy status, um, which would allow you know free transfers of data between the UK and the EU. So that is the positive side. Um, there will be there may be issues. As Craig said, just implementing the GDPR doesn't guarantee you a deal. There are uh, a number of issues on, on data regulation and data privacy in particular where the UK and the EU differ. For example, the ECJ, uh, the European Court of Justice, has ruled that the Investigatory Powers Act, uh, which is usually referred to as a snoopers charter, um, is illegal because it allows for indiscriminate collection of personal data. Um, and in fact, the, the UK Court of Appeal threw out uh, the government's, uh, throughout the, the Investigatory Powers Act yesterday on the basis that it contravenes European law. So now, for people who voted for Brexit, uh, this represents exactly the sort of unwelcome interference in British lawmaking that uh, Brexit is supposed to is supposed to free us from. Um, so, if if the government decides to diverge from European standards in on issues like this uh, in the future, um, and EU, EU perceives that as we are not maintaining uh, the same standards of data privacy protection. Uh, they will be less likely to grant us adequacy status, and that would have uh, enormous implications for uh, for companies sharing personal data between the UK and the EU. Great. Well, Elliot and Craig, thanks so much for joining us on the show, and thank you for listening to this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and if you want to get in touch, send us an email to sideload at edelman.com. See you next time. <laughs>